0: Welcome to Episode 5 of Just Admit It by IvyWise. I'm Nat, a former Senior Assistant Director of Admissions at NYU and NYU Abu Dhabi, and I'm joined by Eric, a former Admissions Officer at Columbia University. Today, we're going to discuss standardized testing. All right, so Eric, it's really nice to be here again with you. We have so much to talk about with everything going on in regard to testing. So let's, let's jump right in. Um, I'd love to start with what you feel is like the ideal time to start thinking and preparing for standardized testing.
1: Well, that's a really good question. And the answer to that really depends um, typically on a student's curriculum. So oftentimes you'll hear, and we can talk about this a little later, uh, the difference between the SAT, ACT and the SAT subject exams. So I think, and Nat, you and I can kind of talk about this um, to sort of form some consensus, Uh, but oftentimes students are taking their first full length official SAT or ACT in the spring of the junior year. That's what I've seen as the most typical, uh, trajectory for those exams. So what might happen oftentimes is that a student would take a February ACT and a March SAT sit a second time in either May and June, throw the subject tests in there and then sit for a third and final sitting for the SAT or ACT in fall of their senior year. The exception is oftentimes for students who are in high-level math courses. They may accelerate uh, or have earlier preparation. And then athletes um, will also sometimes occasionally prep earlier for those exams. Yeah, I like kind of how you phrase that because you were talking
0: about kind of the mode, the mode case study where most students are taking it at this. Um, personally, I like to shift my students a little bit earlier. Um, So I just left a a post where I was director of college counseling at uh, an independent school. And we had all of our 10th graders take a practice full length SAT, which we were in SAT school. So October, usually like the second week of October, the entire 10th grade class would take the PSAT. And then we would have the entire 10th grade class sit for an ACT in April. Um, And we chose April deliberately, um, not only to space out both exams, but knowing that the ACT has more trigonometry questions on it, it it actually gave gave the opportunity for those that weren't in high-level math. And you brought up a great point. It depends on what math level you are in. It gave those students that were in kind of quote unquote, regular level math, uh, more time to learn trigonometry. So the SAT has very little trigonometry, two questions, you know, at, at most, or, you know, on average, while the ACT can have as many as six questions of trigonometry. So we were deliberate in waiting until April of 10th grade. And then we were, and then we would be, we'd compare both of those um, tests together. So Eric, are you, are you saying that you would like you have your students take both the ACT and SAT like, you know, for for submission or I, I'd love to hear you clarify what, what you were saying?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So oftentimes I advise students to take a diagnostic practice, SAT and ACT, since a lot of students and families don't know which tests to concentrate on or if they should be planning to take those exams concurrently. The best way to understand whether or not you prefer the SAT or the ACT is to take a low-stakes practice diagnostic full-length exam under simulated uh, real-life conditions. And most test prep companies will do that for free. You can also self-administer an exam as kind of a last resort. Um, Not already referred to some of the differences between the tests, but I think it's important to note that this is not your mama's SAT. The exams over the past decade or so have gotten much more closely aligned in terms of their pacing and their content. So most students, when they take those diagnostics exams, are going to have an immaterial difference in terms of those scores. Um, And then there are some students who will favor the SAT or the ACT, both in terms of their score and their preference. And then I would encourage students to just concentrate on one test, since every school at this point puts those exams on equal footing. It used to be that the College Board, uh, since it's based uh, on the coast, most people on the East and West Coast took the SAT, while folks in the Midwest took the ACT. Now we see about a 50-50 split nationally, and internationally, so anyhow. A long answer to a short question, which is if you need help deciding, take a practice test.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You, you brought up some great points. The full-length diagnostics um, are very, very important. Um, that is the best practice to figure out which exam is best for you. Um, the other thing that you brought out that I, that I love and I, I want to reiterate is that, yes, the, the grading of both exams has become more and more similar to one another. Right. So when we were taking the test and this is for me, you know, over 25 years ago, you know, the ACT, you were encouraged to guess um, where in the SAT, because you you lost a quarter of a point for a wrong answer, there were specific times. And that's that's no longer the case. Um, And so they are more similar to one another in that regard. But I would say the ACT um, it still relies on. What is known as QPM or questions per minute. So, if you are someone that is very instinctual and can come up with an answer really quickly, the ACT may or may not, you know, may, it it should be, you know, a test that you might gravitate towards a little bit. Um, But again, your point is so important that. You know, you, you can't make a decision unless you take two full length exams. And one of the biggest mistakes that I often see, and this is so disappointing, is that you have a lot of people taking these hybrid test challenges, and, and it's like a it's like a, um amalgamation of both exams. And that is not the best way to figure out which exam to take. I think that can give very, very misleading results. Um, and so um, let's talk a little bit about extended time takers. I know that we both have experience with our students needing extended time. What should, be, what should they be thinking about uh, in regard to taking the exam with extra time on the SAT and the ACT?
1: Great. So for students who um, are seeking or who do qualify for extended time, you know, this is a time sensitive exam part of your performance is based on how you perform on an exam that is under a particular time constraint. However, there are students that have diagnosed learning disabilities that would qualify them for extended time or other accommodations on these exams. The best piece of advice I can give for students and families who maybe have accommodation within their school is to start that process and initiate that process very early. Because guaranteed uh, accommodation is not necessarily um, something that will happen. Also, if you have accommodation for exams at your high school, that does not automatically translate into accommodation via the College Board or the ACT. So it's important that you get those evaluations done and see if you're even eligible for certain accommodations. Extended time is just one of many forms of accommodation for students, occasionally the allowance of computers or a large type text um, or you know, single or multiple day exams can also be possible, but it is a minority of students that are going to be eligible for those accommodations. And it would only be those with diagnosed learning disabilities over. Yeah. You said it. Um,
0: you know, I I think what I found after varsity blues, after that entire, um, you know, that whole mishap with varsity blues and and cheating on the exams uh, among other types of, of, um, you know, Questions of of integrity um, is that both the College Board and the ACT clamped down on on who was to receive extra time um, or extended time, and so you said it. It's really important to start that process early. Um, You know, at at one point, College Board and ACT um, they they were competing for market share, and they still are competing with each other for market share. So college board made it very easy and they said if you you know if you have accommodations at your school then you will you, you will qualify for accommodations on the SAT and and what we found is that you know the extended time doesn't help as much on the SAT as it does on the ACT where questions per minute is a you know a big part of, of how the exam is is um, carried out. So Um, One of the things that um, you need to do and think about, and you already said this, and it's so important, is really start early, right? Start even in 10th grade. So the ACT, you actually have to sign up for an exam to see, to to be able to submit the paperwork in order to see if you are going to qualify for extra time. So you, you have to really be planning ahead. And that's why I like to take the diagnostics as early or no later than, I should say no later than, 10th grade because then that gives you a lot of time. And then, you know, if we kind of zoom back and go back to the the ideal timetable, I love seeing my students prepare for the exam in the summer before their junior year and aim to take it, you know, at the at the end of the summer before junior year or very early in junior year. And again, it's it's case by case. It matters on what level math you are, are in, it matters on matters with what else you have going in the summer, but that's really, really good advice, Eric. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, let's shift over. Unless did we miss anything in terms of testing? I mean, we can talk for days and days about testing and and and, and what to do with SAT and ACT. But um, did we miss anything in that regard?
1: No, let's not, you know, let's <laughs> not spend uh, an entire three hours, which is the length of the SAT, <laughs> talking about it. Uh and a slightly more slender two hours and 55 minutes for the ACT exam. Yes, I don't was. Yeah, to
0: subject, tests, test. or, subject or, tests. Yeah, let's um, let's go ahead and, and jump right yeah. into subject tests. Like, what? why take them and, and what's their purpose?
1: Well, for any of you who are not uh, Zenials or Gen... I think we're I Z right now, right? On, not... Okay, well, as a... <laughs> millennial. (laughs) I am still familiar with the term SAT2s. That does not exist anymore. So the SAT2s morphed into the SAT subject exams, which are one-hour content-specific exams that students would sit for that are still often recommended by many colleges, usually on the more selective side. And the purpose of the subject tests is really to corroborate the rigor of a student's curriculum. So again, these are content-specific Unlike the SAT and ACT, and students have the ability to select from a range of around 20 different subjects. Uh, not you can probably speak a little bit more closely to how you might prepare, what courses, uh, particularly with the Advanced Placement Program, might align with the subject exams, and then also a little bit more about the time frame of when those would fit in.
0: over Yeah, the of there, the there's so much. I mean, this is actually globally. one thing that is really important to remember with subject test scores is that they're used a little bit differently compared to SAT scores. So SAT or ACT scores, these are, you know, metrics that colleges have to report out Um, And when they report them out, that is directly part of a school's bond rating, which we won't necessarily go into tonight. But if you've listened to some of the other podcasts, um, you know that I I talk a lot about the business of colleges Um, and uh, subject test scores are not a part of bond rating. So they are used more as a sorting mechanism. Right. So where the SAT average is really important or the ACT average is really important for the incoming class. In four-year programs, subject test scores are used, you know, in a, in a number of ways. A sorting mechanism is one. You know, Georgetown has, the, you know, had the requirement of three, and that showed kind of a demonstrated interest. If you, you know, that that limited the number of students that would apply to Georgetown, but then in turn, that increased the yield of those students. Because if you took three, like, okay, then you're really serious about Georgetown. So, um, and we'll, we'll talk about how that has shifted now that we're in a pandemic later in the conversation. But you're right in, in terms of talking more specifically about when um, and kind of the course alignment, if, if you're coming from the AP curriculum um, there's probably, you know, the test that aligns the most with a subject test would be history. Right. And um, the AP U S history exam Uh, if you're sitting for that, and that's usually junior year at most schools, you know, it makes sense then that you'd have a lot of overlap with the history subject test. um, Right. And that is something to, to kind of plan ahead. Um, The ones that are a little bit misleading, uh, math two, math two, you would think that that would align more with like advanced math, but the subject matter on math two is really it's pre-calculus uh, and it's a lot of trigonometry, right? So for the advanced math kids, that that might have been a ninth or 10th grade course. And so that math two exam might be better off to be taken, you know, in the end, at the end of 10th grade, right? And um, do you want to talk, Eric, about what's a good score and how do you know what's a good score on each one of these exams?
1: Oh, I love the phrase good score because it doesn't have an answer. But what I always tell students and families <laughs> is that. that better is better. I, can, <laughs> I cannot say with certainty that if you hit a certain benchmark in terms of scores that you're going to be either competitive or admissible to particular colleges. So ultimately, I think what's important, and we don't need to get too much into the weeds on this, but right. percentiles do matter, right? So Nat talked a bit with math too um, as an exam. And that's one where even if you score a 780 out of 800, you might be in like the 67th percentile of test takers. Whereas if you score... a, you know, I don't know another example, but a 650 on the U S history or the lit test, your percentile ranking will be much higher. So it's important yes. to just understand the differences between these things. No,
0: no, you, you said, said that, it. Sorry, I mean, the, you, the, you, you use the you the example that. that I often use with my students. Like, uh, you know, if you get an 800 on math, well, 21% of those test takers in math to get an 800. So a 780, you're already, you know, you're already, uh, behind 21 percent of the test takers and the 750 I believe in math 2 has been as low as like 46 percentile right so 750 sounds good but in the percentile yeah, ranks, which like, is a great point that you bring up, it is it's not it's not great in terms of who you're competing against. <laughs> More College
1: Board trickery. So I think that gives kind of a broad overview of this uh, SAT, ACT, and the subject exams. I think one of the topics that is just so forward in people's minds right now, particularly for the class of 2021 and 2022, is test optional and test blind and the movement of so many colleges to this very profoundly different review and what consequences that might have for those particular classes. Yeah. So not If you want to give kind of the general landscape and then I can... Yes,
0: yeah, so this is a world. great transition because we just finished talking about the subject test. Um, and what we've told all of our students that are kind of applying right now is that do not worry about subject tests right now. If you If you're lucky enough to have a sitting, uh, an SAT opening or an ACT opening, you know, don't use it on a subject test because again, that doesn't affect bond rating where a sub where a, an SAT or an ACT score is something that is needed by the college. So, um, which brings us right to the point of test optional, right? Like we've had so many schools go test optional, but that's not the same thing as test blind. And so the way that rankings work, U.S. News and World Reports, you can be test optional, right? Like you you take there's so many great colleges that have been test optional and they use it to they use the whole notion and the ethos of being test optional to attract more students to apply. And what you have to ask them is like, OK, you know, like you you're test optional and, you know. Over 60% of your students apply without a test score, but the, the real question to answer, to ask them, is what percentage of your admitted class has a test score? And what you'd find if they were to answer that or if you were to look in common data set and, and really data mine that that data, you, you would see that 75% of the class needs to have a test score. So you can be test optional, but you're still going to prefer students to have a test. And if you don't have 75% of the class that has a test score, well, then your test score average is discounted in the rankings. And so talk to me, Eric, about test optional versus test blind.
1: So just in brief, you know, we have a lot of different terminology and acronyms in college admission that we don't expect you to know, but then we do expect you to know it. Single Choice Early Action, the finan- you know, Family and Education Rights to Privacy Act, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. These are all really fun and exciting acronyms that Nat and I know and love very intimately. Um, but test blind and t- test optional are now two new phenomena that are important to distinguish between. Test optional means that a student, if he or she feels that their test score is going to add value to their application, they are free to submit a test score. It will not disadvantage that same student if they elect not to submit a test score. Test blind is a newer phenomenon wherein we're seeing that particular schools are saying, even if you submit a test score, we are not looking at it. It is not a formal factor in our admission review. And that's just an important distinction to make now um, in a new, uh, brave new world where testing may be undervalued. Um, And we're noticing also that out of the top 400 colleges um, in the country, in terms of selectivity, over 44% of them have decided to move to test optional admission for the class of 2022. And 37% of those, that's 155 out of the top 400 colleges are moving Mm -hmm. to test-optional admission permanently. So you'll notice that even highly selective schools like Duke, Georgetown, Cornell, Brown, Berkeley, these are schools that have traditionally relied very heavily on the SAT or ACT in their decision-making. And so it's been a profound shift that they would move to test-optional for one year. And pending how that turns out, I wouldn't be surprised if more of these schools elect to stay test optional. That's right. Yeah.
0: So, and, and, you know, one point to drive home and, and you said this test optional is not the same thing as test blind. Schools have gone test optional and this is a total, you know, this is an additional podcast in itself, but test optional, um, is, is a, is basically an enrollment management technique that schools have used this year to increase the number of applications. They made it easier to apply um, there still is, and let me be very clear about my words, there still is a financial impetus for a college to enroll a class full of kids that have a test score. So you have to make the decision on, you know, if you want to test, if you want to, if you have the ability to test. I have students that have had their test canceled seven times and they don't have a test at all. And that's, you know, that is a, that's a tough position to be in. And then I have other students that you know, that, that are in immunocompromised homes and then just have not, they've, they've decided that they're not going to test. Right. Um, but behind the scenes, there still is a financial impetus for colleges to enroll a class with kids that have a test score. Um, and that, that's a reality. That is a reality. So, um, what, yeah, this is something that I think about a lot, Eric, how close were we to kind of toppling, um, well, how close were we to, to, to being test optional forever, right? Like we we are almost at this point where both the ACT and the college board were, were going to administer kind of at-home exams. Can, can you comment on that, Eric?
1: Well, I have questionable. I think that's a questionable practice. To address your question directly, well, first of all, I wish that you were my college counselor because... The depth of knowledge that you have, particularly about the business side of the world of admission, is really impressive. So, thank you for adding that in. Um, We were, we were. I don't think we were close at all to uh, moving towards test optional admission. But as I have found out now, and just sort of reframed in my mind, there was a time in college admission before the College Board, and I think there will be a time in college admission after the college board so i'm curious and hopeful and a bit heartened that even out of this horrible pandemic that some good things are emerging and while it is small it is still noteworthy that college is going to test optional admission is something that i think will matter from an equity standpoint i think it will matter from a student mental health standpoint and i think that colleges can still make informed decisions on students we've noticed that a lot of liberal arts colleges made the move to test optional admission years or even decades ago and that was because they did want to introduce a more holistic review they weren't necessarily as focused on getting as many applicants as possible and so we're now seeing that shift emerge and move to other colleges who have traditionally been very testing-driven and have prioritized that metric very intensely. And I think it's gonna open up the door and give a lot more opportunity to Mm -hmm. a wider range of students uh, who may not be so singularly focused on that kind of robotic, technique-driven,
0: strategic- Yeah, and then in your, I mean, in your experience at Columbia, Would you say that you could make a decision without a test score? I mean, I know that you used test scores when you were there, but how comfortable would you be in making a decision about admitting someone without a test score?
1: I would have felt very comfortable. The reason for that being that over 75% of students who applied to Columbia were academically viable based on grades, rigor of curriculum, and test scores. So what we were doing in the committee review process was using all of the other qualitative factors to make decisions and distinctions between students that essentially looked identical just based on those three factors. So in the absence of a test score, we would still be making very similar decisions using the essays, using the letters of recommendation, uh, using a student's co-curricular pursuits in order to make those distinctions between students, again, that were very similarly situated and clearly academically prepared for a school like columbia many of other colleges were similarly situated in making distinctions between students that were clearly academically prepared and could contribute to the the college Um, and yeah i don't know like i said before we were not looking for a particular test score in order to meet that threshold for admission but we were looking for a student who had demonstrated academic preparedness And then we were looking towards all of those other factors that I think are in many ways much more telling about who a student is, what they care about, and what they would contribute to a campus community. And I'd love to see more emphasis placed on those qualitative factors because it's really that's the human that you are and that's the human that you want to bring to campus. That's the human that you want to have in your classroom. That's the human that you want to have as a roommate. So I really do hope that this will make uh, what has become such an impersonal and almost factory-like process into something that feels a bit more personal. Uh, that's so awesome, more Eric. Familiar. I think
0: that you you expressed a lot of my feelings exactly in a more <laughs> in a much more eloquent way. I mean, I, I think that what I do know behind the scenes is there there are a lot of groups right now working to try to change the way that admissions works and, um, and yeah, taking the testing out of it is certainly, it's been a big, um, you know, it's definitely been a big, uh, uh, it's been a very visible push. Right. Uh, And I'm not sure that that's the only thing that we need to do to kind of change the testing. But one of the things, and maybe this is the last thing that we'll talk about is that, you know, one of the ways that testing is helpful, the testing agencies, uh, specifically the college board, right? You just said that you didn't necessarily need the test score itself to make a decision, but what the college board provides the colleges is what we call EPS data, right? And it looks at the number of test takers in each region. It looks at the number of PSAT test takers. And so it's very, very informative, helpful data for a college that's planning out their travel season, that's planning out their enrollment, it's planning out their marketing, um, and so it, it's a lot of data that is helpful for establishing the pipeline of a college. And so that's that that's the void that I think colleges don't talk a lot about. They I think that they could easily, like you said, they could easily get away from actually reviewing the test score in, in, in the decision-making process. But I think colleges would feel so lost without that helpful data in establishing their pipeline. So right now with the pandemic, it's such an opportunity for someone, for some entity, some company to jump in and help with the, the, the pipeline. So may, maybe that's NACAC, right? Maybe that's our, our, our kind of governing board, right? Maybe NACAC should take over and handle student search so that it take you know, it's, it's not in the hands of a, of a company that is making money from it. So, um, but I'm going off on a on a tangent. There's you know this is obviously we love this. Um, we geek out about testing and, and the college admissions process all the time. Um, is there anything else that you want to say? <laughs> what do you have any Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Eric. No, I don't
1: I don't actually think that that was tangential at all. In fact, I think it's important that for some people, I think we are looking right. for the pipelines to change, right? Because if this were, you know, uh, blood circulation through the body, it used to be that there were just aortas, you know, there were just a handful of very elite prep schools that were funneling uh, students into the most elite schools. Now we have capillaries, right? Now we have much wider, broader uh, ways that we can attract and, and bring in students and retain them. I'm often reminded about the fact that this is a living, you know, breathing time where, we're seeing a major change in the way that admission works. It wasn't until 1983 that Columbia started admitting women. So I think it's important to understand that this is one moment over the arc of what is a changing landscape and what is a living landscape. I'm very hopeful that this will create an opportunity for more equity. Um, I think the real challenge is not, you know, yes, there's a void here, but I wonder if, you know, looking at the optimistic side is something that we can do now to see if this might be an opportunity for us to think of creative ways to find students that we haven't necessarily explored since you
0: and I were in it. I love that. And on that, I want to thank everyone for, for tuning in. Um, I also want to encourage everyone to sign up for our monthly college admissions newsletter, book, our bookmark our knowledge base for more free college prep resources And thank you. And we will see you soon. This is Nat and I'm signing up for Eric as well. Thanks for tuning in.